The scripture reading for this evening comes from 2 Samuel, chapter 11, verses 1 through 27. This is God's word. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, "Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting." And then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? Then why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came, and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent 
and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So, we are in the midst of a series that we're calling the Five Women of Christmas. And in particular, we're looking at the five women that we find in Matthew's genealogy in the very first chapter, in the opening section of that chapter. And uh, let me remind you what a genealogy is. A genealogy, in short, it tells a story in a very brief, compact way. It tells a story by linking people together, one name after another. It tells a story about events in these people's lives. It tells a story about where a person is from, who they're connected to, and who they are. And therefore, when we come to Matthew's genealogy, we're told that Jesus is descended from King David and also from Abraham. David being the greatest king in Israel and Abraham being the one that God promised that through him, through his offspring, God would bless the nations, all the peoples of the earth. And so what Matthew is saying to us as he begins his gospel and highlighting uh, David and Abraham at the very first verse He's making the claim that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the promised Messiah in whom all of God's promises would reach their fulfillment. But Matthew, he doesn't just list David and Abraham. There are a bunch of other people in this genealogy. And he tells a story for us about Jesus, his family, where he's from, who he's connected to, in a very unusual way for his day and time. And the way that he tells us this story, by who he includes in this genealogy, actually, when we listen and we pay attention to it, he teaches us about the salvation that Jesus brings. And he does it by including these five women. He includes Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba and Mary, and each of these women have a story that seems out of place or not quite right or in some of these cases downright disturbing and wrong, like our story tonight. And so far we've looked at the story of Tamar back in Genesis chapter 38 who seduced her father-in-law into having a child by him in order to carry on her dead husband's family name. And we also looked at Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute. And tonight, we're going to look at Bathsheba. And Ruth is right in between Rahab and Bathsheba, and we'll pick up with Ruth uh, next week. But what do these women so far, what do they teach us about Jesus, about his story? What we did see with Tamar, Tamar's story teaches us that Jesus came to save sinners. That's a story where there are biblical people acting badly and God continues to work. And last week when we looked at the story of Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, what we discover is before the spies sent by Joshua to to spy out the city of Jericho as they begin to enter into the promised land that God had promised to them, 
Before the spies even get there, Rahab has heard about the God of Israel. And when they show up, she confesses faith, trust in this God whom she has heard about. And she, she teaches us that the salvation that Jesus brings is by faith alone. And so tonight, we're to continue looking at what do we learn about what these five women teach us about the story of Jesus and the salvation he brings. And we're going to look at Bathsheba. However, if you did look at Matthew's genealogy, you wouldn't find her name in Matthew chapter 1. Instead, what you would find is she's referred to in a roundabout way by the phrase, the wife of Uriah. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, we read, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, genealogies are, I, I grant you, they can be incredibly boring. You might usually skip them. Uh, you might even just run right by this. But if you think about this, who is in this verse 6? David, Solomon, the two greatest kings in Israel, and the wife of Uriah. Right here, in just a span of about a dozen words, Matthew plunges us into a, stra- a tragic story involving Israel's greatest king, King David. And it's a story of adultery, of manipulation, of the abuse of power, of murder, of conviction, of forgiveness, of grief, and hope. Why, why do we need to stop and hear this story? I think the reason that we need this story is because if you were actually to read all of David's story, there is no other figure in the Bible who gets more print than David. David is perhaps the most talked about figure in the Bible, certainly until you get to the Gospels and Jesus. But David takes up a great deal of space, and he is a far from perfect king. And this story, if there was ever any question, proves the point that whatever we know about David, he is far from perfect. And yet, he is described as the king, the man after God's own heart. He is the king who gave us the vast majority of the Psalms. He is the king who teaches us how to pray. He's the king from which Jesus is descended. Why do we need this story? The reason that we need this story, put up to you like this, that the way of faith is not the way of perfection, but the way of forgiveness. That's what David and Bathsheba teach us. That the way of faith, the life of faith, is not the way of perfection, but the way of forgiveness. You see, if you're looking to the Bible for a model to follow, David is probably one of the worst people to look to. And there, aren't all, there, are, there are few better. There are, are not many people in the Bible that are even better than David. But he, has, he is far from perfect. And his story teaches us that a life of faith is about the way of forgiveness. And therefore, even though Bathsheba, she isn't even named directly in Jesus' genealogy, By including her, the way that he includes her, 
connects us to the very heart of the good news that Jesus brings. That God forgives. That God forgives sin. And so what I want to do is I want to walk through this story with you tonight. And I want to look at it by looking at, first of all, David's crime and his cover-up. Then I want to look at God's response and then we'll finish with God's gift. So first, I just want to walk through with you uh, most of chapter 11 here and walk through this story. And I didn't print uh, portions of chapter 12, but I'll refer to sections from chapter 12 and you may want to um, perhaps read that later on. But as we come to David's crime and his cover-up, when we begin in verse 1, the, the narrator set, sets up the, the situation. Uh, there is an ongoing battle here between Israel and the Ammonites that we, you could read about earlier in chapter 10. And the time of year has come. There's been a pause in that battle. And the time of year has come when the, the kings go out to battle. And David, he sends Joab. He sends his army out, but David remains in Jerusalem. And right at the very beginning, especially if you're all familiar with David's story, David always went out. He led his army. He was at the forefront of leading the military might of Israel. But here, the narrator makes it clear that David doesn't do what a king does. Kings usually go out. But here, David stays home in Jerusalem. And it begins to make the reader wonder, so what is happening here? What's going on with David? And while David's uh, military are out and they're fighting, the story picks up in verse 2, that late one afternoon, David, after he's taken a nap, again, remember, his military is out fighting on his behalf and he's sleeping and he takes a walk out on his roof. And as a, as a king in a palace, it would have been a big, taller uh, building. He walks around, and he's looking down on Jerusalem, and presumably sees into, over the walls of, a private courtyard of someone else's house, and sees a woman bathing, and she's beautiful. And David, without even blinking, sends to find out who is this woman. And the information he receives is her name is Bathsheba. And we get some detail about her, that she's the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, who are these men? Now, first of all, Uriah the Hittite, he was one of David's 30 mighty men. He was among the elite in David's military might. It's in all likelihood that David would have known Uriah personally. Now, who is Eliam? That's Bathsheba's father. Well, Eliam's dad was a man called Ahithophel. And what we know about him was he was a close uh, counselor to David. The point that the narrator is making for us here is that David is learning about another man's wife who is the granddaughter of someone who's been very close to him, an advisor to him. And you would think that perhaps David might think, no, 
Okay, she's totally off limits. But you get no hint of that. Instead, after finding out who she is, David sends for her. And in verse 4, there is a quick succession of verbs. David sends, takes her, and lies with her. And Bathsheba in this story, the only way that she is described is she comes to him and she goes home. Here is a woman who is summoned by her king and is taken advantage of. David abuses his power and she goes home. And presumably the story is over. David is just like a one-night stand or a uh, college hookup, if you will. It's described with almost no emotion, and it's all action, and it's over as quick as it has begun. But then, verse 5, the woman, perhaps after a few weeks or even a month or two, sends a message to David. And it's two words in the Hebrew, I'm pregnant. Now, you might be wondering, or perhaps David was wondering, well, how does he know? Maybe this really isn't his child. But the writer makes it very clear. He's trying to make it black and white that this child is David's. Because in verse 4, he writes in the parenthesis, now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. The writer wants us to know that prior to going to David, She had just finished her monthly cycle. She was not pregnant before going to David. This is David's child. And now David has a problem. What was a secret is now about to become very public. And so verse 6, David wastes no time. He sends to Joab, the leader of his, his army, to send home Uriah the Hittite. And under this false pretense of getting Uh, Uriah to come home, David engages with Uriah in a conversation. How are things going? How's Joab? How are the people? How's the battle, the war going on? And after enough time of that conversation, David says to Uriah, why don't you go home? You don't have to go back just yet. Why don't you go home? Go down to your house. Four times between verses 8 to verse 10, that phrase, go down to your house, occurs. David, this is his cover-up. He has committed adultery against Bathsheba and against Uriah. He has abused his power and place and, and privilege as a king. And now he's going to cover it up by trying to get Uriah to go home and lie with his wife. And that funny phrase that perhaps you noticed when David says, go down to your house and wash your feet, is a euphemism for having sex with your wife. And David sends him home, even with a gift, and yet Uriah refuses to go. And David finds out and asks him, why are you not going home? You've been away for a while. Isn't that what you would do? And Uriah says to David, there is no way I will do that. I will not be comforted by my wife or enjoy the comforts of my house. When your servants, Joab, my fellow soldiers, are out sleeping in the fields, fighting on behalf of your people, I will not do that. 
He even says to David, he also he basically swears to David, as long as your soul lives, I will not do that. And so David's first plan backfires. And so David decides, well, I'll have Uriah remain a little bit longer and I'll try to get him drunk. And maybe then his defenses and his loyalty will evaporate and he'll go home and this will all become a thing of the past. But to great David's surprise, even after forcing Uriah to get drunk, Uriah does not go home. He sleeps out with David's servants on the steps of the palace. And one commentator I thought very uh, succinctly quipped that Uriah is more faithful and loyal drunk than David is sober. And here's the issue. David's plans continue to backfire. And so he now uses his power. He sends Uriah back to Joab with a letter with his own death warrant on it. And he tells Uriah, or to Joab, through this letter, I want you to put Uriah on the front lines so that he'll die. And Joab, who is a ruthless and skilled warrior, does exactly what he's told. And Uriah dies. And Joab then prepares the messenger to go home to talk to David. And it's very interesting here because what we discover in all of this instruction that Joab gives to the messenger is that ordinarily David gets very upset if Joab makes decisions that put his men in harm's way. That ordinarily David doesn't ever want Joab to send his men on a suicide mission. And yet here, he sends the messenger back and he says, if David does get upset because you hear about this, All you need to say is your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Very uncharacteristically from what we know about David, when the messenger comes back, reports to David what happened, David's response is cold and calloused. He says, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack. Take the city, encourage Joab. What for David usually leads him to rebuke Joab, now he just writes off as it's just a casualty of war. That's what happens. And with the passing of Uriah, David's plan succeeds. The threat is gone. And after the requisite mourning period, David takes Bathsheba, to be his wife. And the problem is solved. That's David's crime and his cover-up. But then how does God respond? The very end of verse 27, the only real description about the behavior that we see in this passage comes. The writer tells us that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, before we move on to God's response, I just want to pause for a minute and think about what are we being told here about from this story about David and Bathsheba, his crime and his cover-up. What we're being told here is it's a warning, 
but it's also a story that creates a longing. It's a warning to the powerful and the invincible. It's a warning to those of us. David, in this situation, let me back up for you. He has arrived as the king of Israel. There are no threats to his throne. He has received God's blessing and promises that his kingdom would last forever. He has effectively put down all of the surrounding enemies with the exception of the Ammonites, which they're in the midst of uh, overthrowing in this story itself. David has arrived. This is the pinnacle of his reign. He is an invincible, powerful king. And yet, he is also at his most vulnerable. Whether it's the issue in this context of adultery, that's the the flavor of sin that is uh, very clear here. But what you need to see is, for David, he is an invincible, powerful man. And he is profoundly vulnerable, precisely because of that. And what we see happen here with David is really uh, summarized in something that James writes in James chapter 1. Listen to what he says. He says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then the desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's David. That's the picture of what happens to David, the powerful and the invincible. But this story also creates a longing. It's a story that's unjust. It's not right. It's not how things are supposed to be. And it's a story that creates a longing for a king who does justice and loves mercy. It's a story that creates, I think, a longing for a king who uses his power for people, not against people. Or perhaps better yet, even a king who's so committed to his people, he would rather lose his power and status than lose his people. But there is no such king in this story. And in fact, the writer, the way in which the writer presents David and Uriah, the only person who acts at all like a king in the story is Uriah, who is a servant. Uriah is the one who acts with absolute faithfulness and loyalty. He refuses to give in to his own, even his own good pleasures, the things that he, are his to enjoy. He refuses to give in and enjoy anything that would interfere with his service and faithfulness to his king and to his king's people. And in fact, what we do see here is that Uriah, not David, gives us a glimpse of the king that we really need. It gives us a glimpse of Jesus, the servant king, a king who was willing to set aside his desires even in the face of temptation for our good, for our sake. We needed a king here who, came, who comes not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It's a story that creates a longing. David is not the king that we need, however great he may have been. He points us in contrast with Uriah to the king that we do need, King Jesus. And so that's David's crime and his cover-up. But what about God's response? We said that God is displeased. 
What David has done, God is not pleased with. And so what does God do? He sends Nathan the prophet in chapter 12. And essentially what God does is he helps David to see. He helps David to see. Because Nathan comes and tells David a story. And after telling the story, David is outraged. So much so, he says, the man in that story should die. And Nathan says, well, you're that man. And then he goes on to say to David, you have forgotten, you have rejected, you have despised all of God's promises to you, all of his kindness to you, all of his mercy and grace to you. And instead, you have taken Uriah's wife and you have killed him with your enemy's sword. And as Nathan finishes, David says in only two words, I have sinned. He confesses. God confronts David. He enables him to see what he was doing. And David, broken by this news, which he should have known, but blinded by his own numbness, blinded by his own power and invincibility, doesn't see it. And David, in light of Nathan's message, sees. And David confesses. And Nathan assures him that, da- that God's, God has taken away his sin, that he's forgiven him, but that it will come at a cost. David's sin came, brings consequences. God says that the, the, the baby that will be born by Bathsheba will die. And in fact, the very things that you have done the conflict that you've brought into this situation, it will never part from your house. God's response is a response of forgiveness and of severe discipline, of severe mercy to David. And at this point, I think it'd be safe to say that does, this doesn't really sound like forgiveness. How can it be forgiveness that God would actually say that he forgives David and then say that, the son that was to be born to him would die. But the thing they have to remember when we step back from this story, that throughout the Bible, forgiveness is always costly. Forgiveness is always costly. And David, he had to bear the cost of losing a son. Which brings us to God's gift. The story at this point is full of grief of sorrow, of sadness, of loss over what David has done. And he's brought Bathsheba right into the middle of it. But as the story reaches its end towards the middle of chapter 12 and verses 24 to 25, God actually sends David and Bathsheba a sign of his forgiveness. He gives them another son whose name was Solomon. You see, God forgives David, but he also gives him a gift to to assure him that this forgiveness is his. It's a sign of God's forgiveness that's a gift. And it's a, a sign of God's forgiveness and commitment to David, to his promise that their his kingdom would never end. 
Now, I think it's safe to say that uh, there is no way around it. This is a terrible story. As one Old Testament commentator wrote, this narrative is more than we want to know about David. And it's more than we can bear to understand about ourselves. But the end of this story teaches us that sin and death don't get the last word. Instead, there is a gospel pattern in this story. It's a pattern of forgiveness at at great cost that leads to new life. See, here is the clue to the story of Jesus. As this story enters into the genealogy of Jesus... It's a clue to his story, which is a story of forgiveness, that Jesus has come to absorb the cost of sin through dying on the cross. It's a story that puts an end to trying to be perfect. It's a story that helps us to realize that what we most need is not to be better than David. What we most need is not self-improvement, but forgiveness. See, David didn't need to be a better king, though he should have been. What David forgot was that he was forgiven. And that he needs God's forgiveness. Because if there's anything obvious about David's story, it's that he is absolutely not perfect. Eugene Peterson, uh, who was writing on, on the story of David, he writes this. The story of David is not a story of what God wants us to be, but a story of God working with the raw material of our lives as he finds us. David's story is told with so much detail so that we will have spread out before us exactly what goes on in a thoroughly lived human life in which God is shaping a life of salvation. David was a man of God, but not by any means a perfect man of God. Now, how do you respond to a story like this? The story of Bathsheba who's named in Jesus' genealogy as the wife of Uriah. Well, I suppose one place to begin is, do you know you need to be forgiven? Can you relate to David's story of being blind to what's really true about you and then finding it brought right in front of you? How do you respond when you see that in your life? Do you try to cover it up? Do you try to pass it off or explain it away? Or do you confess and receive forgiveness? You know, the the bit in the story where David uh, confesses and said, I have sinned. It's only two words in the original there. And you might read that and think, wow, this is sort of cheap. Is that all David has to do to be forgiven is just say that? That's why we read Psalm 51 earlier in our worship service. David schools us, not in the way of perfection, but in the way of forgiveness. David's story teaches us how to enter into forgiveness, to experience God's forgiveness, to own who we really are and discover that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's Jesus' story. That's what he has come to bring to you. He has come to bring you a message of forgiveness for your sin.
that God would be reconciled to you. That you can enjoy a personal, vital, life-giving relationship with your maker. And never be afraid of being cast out, but always enjoying his welcome and his forgiveness. That's what the story of Bathsheba teaches us. As we look at these five women of Christmas, they help us to see who is this Jesus whom God has sent to dwell among us in order that we might be made right with our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would work through this story as vivid and raw as it is to help us to to find a place to go where we can confess and admit that we are not what we should be and we cannot be that. And as hard as that can be to admit, there is still good news that you are a God who forgives. And it's a costly forgiveness. And because of Jesus, it's a cost that we don't have to bear. But you sent your son, your beloved son, as the payment for our sin, that he would bear the cost so that we might be forgiven and enjoy new life through faith in him. Father, we pray that you would help us to lay hold of that good news by faith. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.